Although, again, I don't think we're going to uh, do a reading. There's a number of places you could open it at. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12 might be good, but we may go to some others before that. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for your mercy to us. We're so thrilled to gather in your name. We're so excited, Lord, to hear your commissioning word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the call to be like Jesus, to be lion-like, to be, Lord, catching something of your tremendous dignity and your roar, Lord, your utter authority and freedom and glory. We thank you, Jesus, that the lamb that was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We honour you, Jesus, as our roaring king. And Lord Jesus, we want to catch something of your spirit here this morning. We acknowledge our frailty, our creatureliness, Lord, our need of a divine intervention. And we need, Lord, energy from heaven to come on us. So we, we call on you together, Lord. We thank you that you're father-like to us. And if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who are. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your teaching, we ask for your empowering, we ask for your convicting, your inspiration, your motivation. Come on us, Lord. Come and do us good. Come, Lord, empower and send us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I promised earlier, I am bringing the second part of this uh, two-part talk on Saul and David. And as I reminded you on the first occasion, I came to this passage just being reminded of the extraordinary prophetic preaching of Ern Baxter some 25, maybe more like 30 years ago, uh, when he spoke about the new anointing that was evidently coming to the church, actually globally, a freshness was coming to the body of Christ, spilling over from denomination to denomination, a new life, a new sense of energy and excitement, new hope was being born. And as he saw this new anointing, he felt it was like the days of David when God did a new thing and raised up a new kingdom. And as he did, he compared David's emerging kingdom with Saul's declining kingdom. And we saw in that first talk how actually when he preached that, the, it was a bit incipient, it was just beginning to happen. But now, as some 30 years have slipped by, yes, we've seen thousands of churches closing that had some of the... Uh, style of Saul, somewhat reflecting human thought, reflecting human attitudes rather than divine attitudes. And of course, I don't intend going back through that all again, but just to remind you of those headings we looked at, Saul was a man of faulty foundations. He was very much a man of the earth, not a man raised up by God. We saw surface success, we saw defective devotion, reluctant Repentance. Actually, one of the things that drew me to this whole passage was in my own devotional life. I was reading through 2 Corinthians and came to 2 Corinthians 7 and saw how Paul commended the church at Corinth for their repentance. He says, what zeal, what application, how wholehearted you were in your repentance. And uh, that caught my eye. I spent a couple of mornings looking at that, at the words that Paul used, because he was so excited about the much maligned Corinthians, because their repentance was so wholehearted, and it was so acceptable and pleasing to Paul, and of course so exciting to God. And of course one of the terribly ugly features about Saul is that even when he was found to be wrong, he didn't have a heart of repentance, one of the biggest differences between him and David. He didn't seem to really see it from a God perspective. He was still interested in his image. He was uh, making a monument to himself. He said to Samuel, please walk with me. Although God's dealt with me very seriously, would you make me look good in front of my elders, please? A very tragic, superficial figure. And then finally we saw the confiscated, confiscated kingdom. Now I want to move on to David, obviously, in this talk. And I want to speak, first of all, about the mystery of God's choice. The mystery of God's choice. Soon Goliath is going to appear. We haven't got time to get into that wonderful story. But we know that Goliath's call was, choose a man for yourself. Now they'd already tried that, and it hadn't worked. But that was the call. Choose a man for yourself. 
And happily, the answer, if you like, comes through what God said to Samuel a chapter or so before, rather secretly, behind the scenes, when he said to Samuel, I have chosen a man for myself. God chose his man. And although the world wants to put pressure on us to come up with something that looks good against the Goliaths that the world can produce or that Satan can produce, nevertheless, we're not to be the ones who come up with the answer. God himself will come up with the answer. Hallelujah. It's his battle. It's his kingdom. Ultimately, it's his victory. And he's the one who's going to look after it. So it's the mystery of God's choice. Now, God making the choice is somewhat offensive sometimes to the human mind. We can think, is that fair? Why is it he gets the choice? Doesn't it matter how hard I try? Doesn't it matter how good I am? But the Bible does insist on this. It insists that in his kingdom, he makes the choices. He says, I've chosen a man. No one else knows him yet, but God knows him. And he's made his personal choice. God is now acting. God's stepping on the stage. God has seen the plight of his people. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them through the wilderness. He's brought them into the land. It's time to move on. God's great plan is unfolding. Human stories come and go. Characters come on the page. Come and go. Ruth comes and go. People come and go. But God's plan and purpose is breaking through. And God says, it's time for a new anointing. It's time for my kingdom purpose to break out. And beloved, that's what church history depends on in the end. Not our ability to come up with something. Not our ability to find a new system, a new ability, a new uh, way of making church work. In the end, we're very dependent on God saying, I'm about to move again. The sort of thing we've just heard. God stepping in. That's what Owen Baxter thought he saw. God's on the move. And I believe we've watched it in our generation. Many of us in this room could say, whew, my Christian experience was revolutionized and it seems as though it keeps on being revolutionized. God is moving us on in his great plan to glorify his son in every nation of the world. He is working to a great purpose. So he will take fresh initiatives. It's not for us to panic. He's the God who takes fresh initiatives powerfully by his spirit. And he chooses this man. We can sometimes say, uh, well, is it, is it fair? Well, the Bible says simply in Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. You might say, well, haven't I got free will? Yeah, but God's is freer. <laughs> God does what he pleases. And it's a very good idea to get in step with him instead of arguing. In fact, the whole of the nation of Israel was the people God had chosen. It's always been his initiative. He chose Abraham. There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, Abraham was searching for God and found him. No, no, no. Abraham's just a pagan and God interrupts his life. God comes on him. God initiates. God chose him. And then when he has a son, God says, no, I'm, I, I'm not choosing Ishmael. I'm choosing Isaac. I'm, I, I'm selective. I choose who I choose to choose. He retains the initiative. He has the glory. It's not for us to try and wrest things out of his hand. He does it his way. Gives us peace and joy if we'll just drink it in. And with the next generation, so as we're absolutely clear about this, it says, telling us in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, in Romans 9 and 11, that God chose Jacob, not Esau. And it says this, Though the twins were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Right? It's making it explicit. It's not saying, well, God knew that Esau would be a hairy guy and doesn't like hairy guys. No, he, before they're born, before it happened, before he's done anything good or bad, nothing to impress God, God, out of his sovereignty, makes the choice. And the Bible tells us that again and again. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God's taking the choice. They're God's people. And so it's up to God who he makes to be the king of his people. That's the way it is and that's the way it's always going to be in his church. He's the one who, we, who chooses and, and he surprises us. He chooses here David. He chooses the one who's forgotten, the one who's not there when Jesse invites Samuel, or at least Samuel invites himself uh, to Jesse's home and is coming to pray or anoint uh, one of his sons and we know the story well we won't go into the detail but you do recall 
that David wasn't even invited to the party. And when he's looked at these other guys who are named one after another, and the, the question comes, is, is, is there another one? And uh, Jesse says, yes, the youngest. Doesn't even name him. Yeah, the youngest. He's looking after the sheep. The guy who doesn't count. The guy who was not. God has chosen the things that are not. It's so wonderful. We don't have to present some wonderful image. We, if you know you're called, you just come through with God. You have all heaven behind you. You have God's power on you. And here, this one who didn't seem to be impressive, God says quite plainly, I have chosen for myself a man after my own heart and appointed him as ruler over the people. So the mystery of God's choice. Now that leads David to an attitude of, first of all, wonder. And, and that sense of fellowship with God. And this is where he is in such contrast to Saul. Saul is surprised that he's given the opportunity. He showed some humility, as we saw. He hides. He, he shows some battle aptitudes. He shows some uh, impressive things. But one thing that we don't see is what we do see in David, this sense of wonder that God has chosen him. This appetite for fellowship that characterizes the true servant of God. Like Moses, who's saying, Lord, show me your glory. I want, I want to know more of you. He's not just going to be a great shepherd of millions of people. He's, he's a man with his own appetite for God. I can't find anything of that in Saul. I don't see a trace in the Bible of Saul wanting fellowship with God. But I find with those whom God has called, they're just staggered and amazed. God's called me. And Moses has said, I want to see you, you. I want to have a glimpse. If I found grace, show me your glory. We find Saul in the New Testament, another one that God suddenly interrupts and apprehends. He said, oh, that I might know him. Not just that I might evangelize the world even, but that I might know him. That's his passion. Yes, to make him known, obviously, but that I might know him. I might know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to, I want to know Jesus. That's Paul's great longing and passion. And that should be our insatiable appetite. That we want to know this God, not just to serve him. Is that in your heart? I believe that's why you're here. You say, I want to know God. I'm hungry to know him better. Then I notice too that when we know we're chosen, it's the ground of faith. We really know I didn't get into this as my own idea. I never chose it. Not like a guy I was at school with who said to me, when we were sixth form, he said, I'm, I'm going into politics and then he said, if I can't get into politics, I'm going into the church. You know, he's choosing for himself. I don't know how he got on. But when you know, no, I didn't choose. God did the choosing. Someone came to see me recently, quite a well-known figure in this country, said, why is it you think you're enjoying some success when some other things have not enjoyed success? He said, do you think it's your doctrine of the sovereignty of God? Before I'd even answered the question, he answered for me. And I know for myself, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God keeps me strong. Keeps me secure. In days of drift and battle and difficulty and things I can't understand. Think, Lord, you started this thing. You knew what you took on board. You knew the vulnerabilities. You knew the weakness. You knew I'm dust. That's where we find comfort, isn't it? We find comfort coming back to God. Say, Lord, you chose. You complete the work that you began. Hallelujah. We're locked into God. We're not locked into trying to find an answer. We're locked into God. And so that, that brings tremendous strength to God's people. Incidentally, and not to spend a lot of time on it, it wasn't that God didn't want a king. It's not that the idea of a king was forced onto God. If you look back into Deuteronomy before Saul, you'll find God speaks of how the king should live. It was always God's plan there should be a king. In fact, David is the great type of our Lord Jesus Christ. David, we're told, is the mess, the, 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 like the Messiah. And Jesus, we're told, sits on David's throne. So it's always God's purpose there should be a king. And so we mustn't think, oh, the whole idea of having a king is wrong if we look at the whole picture. No, God had one coming. It's just that people wouldn't wait long enough. One of our great sins. We won't wait for God. We want to push God. We want to force his hand. And here... 
Here's the one that God has chosen. We see the story of the story of Ruth. That's tucked in before 1 Samuel. It's almost like, just read the story of Ruth and then right at the end there it says, and that, and the child of Ruth and the child of this and the child goes down to David. It's like, behind the scenes, I'm getting David ready. It's here, it's here in Ruth. David's coming, but they can't wait for David's coming. They say, let's do this thing. Let's be like the other nations. They miss God altogether. Meanwhile, God's working it out. Hallelujah. God's got his David in the wings. He's got him ready. He's coming through. We must be so careful not rushing ahead of God. It's one of our greatest dangers in this world. We can want so much press button and let it happen. No, God was working it through. God was having his way. And when we know God's called us, you get that kind of spirit that you see with Elijah when he says, the, the God before whom I stand. You feel that when Ahab met Elijah, it's almost like he met God. Because God is so speaking through him. He's so clear about his commission. He's so aware. I've come from God. Moses is like that. I come from God. I'm, I, and David and, and, and Saul in the New Testament, Paul in the New Testament, whether it's King Agrippa, whoever, he knows I'm coming from God. And the world is still waiting for a church that looks like it's coming from God. It's not scratching around to be impressive. It knows it's commissioned, as we've just heard prophetically, coming out like lions from this conference, assured of our calling. It comes then from this first thing of knowing we've been chosen. All that's wrapped up. It does that for us. It must have done it for David. The second thing I want to bring your attention to is the wonder of God's anointing. You're familiar with the story when Samuel went to Jesse's home and selected David and anointed him. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord came mightily on David from that day forward. What an experience that must have been. From that day on, he's aware of a companionship. He's aware of a personality. He's aware of God being on him. He's aware I have come into another dimension. God is with me. And the Spirit of God is resting upon him. It's a new day and a new companion in his life. I believe God would say to us, I want you to learn more and more about the companionship of the Holy Spirit. That's our calling, to have that companionship. I think as charismatics, we're somewhat lightweight, not living up to our title. Charismatic, having the gift of God's grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit, fellowshipping with us on a daily basis, enjoying his partnership. I had breakfast with uh, Mahesh Shavdo last week in the Metropole here, was in town and it was just a joy to speak to that dear man of God and I was just talking to him and you know there are some men that you just sense God around them and uh, the grace of God that's on him and he was talking about the way he's ministering and things he does and I was asking him some questions about healing and so on and uh, he, said, he said it's learning to sense the spirit. And he said, uh, I try to mentor guys sometimes, but he said, uh, he said I, find that, I find there's a brashness often with those that are wanting to get near me. And he said, I, I, I say, now do this, now come here. And he said, they'll do something, and I, and I feel a real disquiet. And then he said, I feel the withdrawing of my dearest friend. And it just stuck in my heart. I thought, oh, just how he talked about the Holy Spirit. He said, I felt the withdrawing of my dearest friend. He just knows what it is to fellowship with the Holy Spirit, to feel the nearness of the Spirit. Often I find that people that are powerfully clothed with the Spirit and joy, they don't seem to match up with lots of things I'm looking for, but they have a sensitivity to God. A friend of mine in the USA was a student once. He was asked to just look after Catherine Kuhlman before a meeting, and he didn't have a lot of time for her. He wasn't impressed with her. She was quite a strange lady. She dressed strangely. She made up strangely. And uh, he said he was just waiting for her. I think, when is she going to get ready? And she's at the other end of this room and she's walking up and down like this and she's just saying, oh, be with me. Holy Spirit, be with me. And she, he's and like, what a weird lady. And she's just looking for God and eventually she's just at peace. And she just turned to this friend of mine and she said, are we ready? And he just went crash on the floor. <laughs> 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 Thank <laughs> you. 
when I read little books like Good Morning Holy Spirit, I don't necessarily read every chapter, but I love reading those early chapters. The Spirit, the intimacy, the fellowship of the Spirit. I was privileged to go and see Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The first time I ever met him, he had preached a wonderful, wonderful sermon at Westminster Chapel in full black Geneva gown. His bald tome over that great pulpit. And he preached this magnificent sermon. It gripped me, excited me, stirred me so much. I was absolutely fixed. I thought, I'm going to go and see him. I went to see him. And I asked him some questions about another theme. And, he, and he just, I thought, boy, that was so mighty. And, I, and I, I said, I asked him a question. He said to me, how many points did I say I had tonight? Or this morning, whenever it was. And uh, I, I remember he, he didn't normally say that. He didn't usually say I have this or that. But that morning he said, I had three points. And I remembered him saying it. So I said, uh, three. And I'm scared stiff. You know, this is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he's, he said, how many points did I give? And I thought, I don't remember him going past one. It was gone for an hour, but I don't remember. And I said, uh, one. And he said, that's right. He said, the Spirit gave me the rest. And he pointed some notes on the desk. He said, they'll do for next week. <laughs> See, a man... A man noted for his scholarship and his biblical exposition, but a man in the pulpit with 1,500 people in front of him, but he's so in the Spirit, so aware, aware of the Spirit on him, such a man of the Spirit. He captivated you. You're gripped. And for him, well, I've got my notes, but no, 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 the Spirit, he said, the Spirit came upon me. What a privilege to hear a, a great Bible teacher say, the Spirit came upon me. Those notes will do. I just followed the Spirit. The Spirit came on David. The anointing of the Spirit. I think of dear men like John Wimber on this platform. A man who knew how to fellowship with the Spirit. I took so seriously some of the prophetic words God said to us while we've been together here. He wants to develop our relationship. He wants us to get to know one another better. And that comes through fellowship with the Spirit. God wants a new level of intimacy Amen? I'm after that. I feel that in my heart. I feel a yes to God when I hear that. I don't feel, oh no, charismatic, been that since the 60s. I just feel I want to know the Holy Spirit more. And I love opportunities to sit and talk with people like Mahesh or Rambabu or dear David Carr here. People I sense, they feel the Spirit's promptings. And I'm hungry and thirsty to know more. The wonder of the anointing. We need to know it. We need to Enjoy it. Notice that then we serve by the Spirit. Now it's not just for ministry, as we'll go back to later, but this is, we're, not, we're not of the letter, we're of the Spirit. And so cultivating a relationship is very different to just keeping the letter of the law. I love Romans 7.4. We have died to the law, that old husband, impotent husband, that we might be joined to him who was raised from the dead. That powerful man, that powerful son of God, that we might bear fruit for God. I want the fruit that comes out of a love relationship with him who's been raised from the dead. We're not just letter of the law people. Sometimes people say, well, maybe you can do this. Can Christians do this or not? Am I allowed to? What can I get away with? Or even cheapening our whole message of grace, saying, well, God loves us anyway. We can get away with it. I'm missing the point of fellowship. Missing what it is to please our heavenly bridegroom. To enjoy the companionship of the Spirit. It's a relationship. You know, when Jesus turned and looked on Peter, he didn't say, you've just broken the ninth commandment. You've just borne false witness. He just looked on Peter. And because of their relationship, broke his heart. Do you find I'm surprised sometimes some Christians seem to be able to get away with things. Does your fellowship with the Spirit allow you to say things like that? Does your fellowship with the Spirit allow you to gossip? Does your fellowship with the Spirit allow you to participate in that? Or haven't you cultivated a relationship that makes those kind of demands on you? Are you a free agent? If we want to cultivate fellowship with the Spirit, you're not a free agent. 
You're in a relationship that has certain demands. That once, once that when Jesus looks at you, when the Spirit draws near, you don't feel, oh, I wish I'd never said that. Turn away and weep. He's looking for fellowship, not just keeping these rules. It's heart to heart. It's eye to eye. It's pleasing the Lord. That's the feel of the new covenant, and that's our life in the Spirit. We need to know what it is to fellowship with this anointing that's with us, the Spirit resting upon us. And so though Saul was privileged in having the Spirit, and he prophesied, he didn't know God. And it says in the New Testament, some will come and say, we prophesied in your name. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. You didn't cultivate relationship. That was Saul's problem. Are you cultivating a relationship with the Spirit? I want to encourage you to do that. David certainly did. Now what was the purpose of his anointing? What was the purpose? Well, there are two things. One, I want to come to straight away. He was anointed to be a warrior king. All right, He was anointed to be a warrior. It's interesting how early in life he got that reputation. So we read in 1 Samuel 16, 18, the son of Jesse, a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior. That was his reputation when they're introducing him to Saul. When they're saying, he Saul says, I want someone who will play music for me. I want a little bit of charismatic in my world just to calm me when I'm in need. doesn't want the whole thing, just a little bit of uh, singing uh, to invade a little bit. We'll have a few songs in. Uh, we don't want to change everything, but we'll just have a few of these new songs in. And so he wants some of these songs in. And he said, who can play for me? And he's told, well, uh, here's a guy who could come. And he's, he's introduced like this. He's a warrior. Extraordinary that he had that reputation while he was still young. He's a warrior. Was he a warrior by nature? I wonder if he was. Jesse didn't seem to say that. He didn't say, when, when Samuel said, is there a king here, by implication? He said, Whoa, you want to see my youngest? Wow, he's scary. He didn't say that at all. He's this nameless kid outside looking after the sheep. So what turned him into a warrior? I can only assume it was the spirit coming on him. I'm not sure it was his temperament. He was a shepherd boy. He was a singer of songs, a writer of poetry. He's a lover of people. He's a very loving man. He loved Jonathan. He loved Bathsheba. He loved too many people, Michael Eaton says. <laughs> he loved Saul. Broke his heart when Saul died. He's a loving, loving man. He cared profoundly. He's full of love. And yet he's called a warrior. And so being a fighter isn't necessarily something instinctive in you. The Spirit came mightily on David from that day. And something happened in him. The Spirit came on him. Now we read about that with judges. We see Samson, who I don't think is a very... I mean, he's an amazing guy, isn't he, Samson? He doesn't look like a warrior. He looks like a playboy. But when the Spirit comes upon him, he's a different kind of guy. It says, a lion came roaring towards Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came on him mightily, and he took hold of the lion and tore it apart like one does a young goat. You know how one does a young goat? <laughs> this is a lion roaring towards him, and the Spirit came on him, and he suddenly becomes a warrior. Instead of a layabout, just fancying the girls, what can you dad get me that one? You know, he doesn't look like a fighter. What made him a warrior? The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he became a warrior. What do we understand from Exodus 15? Moses says, The Lord is a warrior. The old King James, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a fighter. The Lord himself is a fighter. The Spirit of the Lord came on David, he became a fighter. He is a warrior. That's why God can say to a man like Gideon, who by nature it seems to be a weak guy, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. How come? Well, the Lord is with you, and he is a warrior. So what's the anointing about? Beloved, the anointing is to turn us into warriors, roaring lions. The Spirit is to change us and to give us boldness and confidence. And so we find in David, David becomes a warrior. He tears himself. He's like Samson. He tears apart the bear and the lion. Seems to be a thing for charismatics. Tearing bears and lions apart. When the Spirit came upon Samson, but that's what happened to David. The Spirit came upon David and he fought alone and defeated a bear and a lion because it's the Lord who is the warrior. And it built into David a belligerent 
willingness, his fellowship, not like Samson. You see, Samson didn't cultivate relationship. He was a guy who lived a strange life, but when the Spirit came on him, it's also true of Saul, interestingly enough. You can read about Saul in 1 Samuel eleven six when the enemy came in. It says the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul and he became angry and got the army together and they went. Interesting that. It wasn't in Saul's temperament. But when the Spirit came on him, he stirred a whole army to fight. We need to cultivate more relationship with the Spirit. So that when David came on the battle scene and there's Goliath and the whole nation is trembling and the the soldiers, the army and the royal king, they're all trembling and David walks on and says, who's this guy? He's ready for a fight. He's up for a fight. There's something about the spirit on us that turns us into fighters. If you're a leader, you've got to be a fighter. The great heroes of the Bible are not... Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that's not great thinkers. You know, we've got Solomon, he's a great thinker, but most of them, Joshua, David, Gideon, most Bible heroes are fighters. And it's telling us we've got to be fighters. And it may not be in your natural temperament. You might, you might be a, a, a singer of songs, a bit of a poet, but the Spirit can come on you and change you. The Spirit of God can come on us, and we find here David becomes a warrior leader. By the Spirit. The Spirit changes him. Is the Spirit changing you? As you've been going on in the Spirit, do you think people have noticed, do you know, she seems to have new courage that she never had before. There's a boldness about her. There's a boldness about him. It's not, I've known them for years. They weren't like that. It's something that's come upon. And we mustn't miss that. It came upon David. He became like that. And we must make sure, like David, he refused to get shut in. He refused to let the enemy dictate the action. And so he was up for a fight with Goliath. No room for complacency. We must not come up with what is very difficult around here. See, Saul could have said that. It's Goliath shouting, very difficult around here. So many people say, ours is a hard town. And we, we can just get into that mode. It's very difficult here. But David was up for a fight. You up for a fight? We've got to be saying, God, help us to be cultivating such a relationship with the Spirit that we don't give in to cynicism, indifference, just settling for the status quo. When I started some celebrations in Brighton years ago, Hove Town Hall actually gathered about 1,000 people. This is way ahead, as it were. It's back in the 70s, I think. And a pastor came to see me from Worthing, and he said to me, can you stop these meetings, please? And I said, why, why do you want me to stop them? Because, he said, because my young people come and they really enjoy them. <laughs> and then he said this, and you know church can never be like this. That's honestly what happened. He said that to me. He said, you know church can never be like this. He had settled for the status quo. And I was thinking, I wish these meet- meetings at the town hall would come alive. We can't settle. David would not settle. The Lord himself is a warrior. Notice that lovely verse we often quote it in Psalm 24. Who is the king of glory? This is who he is. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's what he's like. He gets into battles and he's mighty in them. Revelation 19, he comes on a white horse. He wages war. That's what it says. He's come to wage war. So here David is clothed with the spirit and ability now to war warfare. Now we see what happens to him next. He's a leader. A warrior leader is going to need an army. He's not just being anointed for himself. God's got a plan. God, as Owen Baxter talks about, the crumbling Army and kingdom of Saul and this emerging army. And he's saying these characteristics are very important to get hold of. Very, very important. So we see what happens next. He starts alone. It has, has, that, well, it has to be you alone with God, whether it's uh, Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, uh, whether it's Moses at the burning bush, whether it's David. That's the way it starts. It starts with you meeting with God alone. Starts with Hudson Taylor walking up and down the beach here. Starts with Jackie uh, Pullinger burning with passion to go to Hong Kong. It starts with one person alone burning. That's how it starts. 
You may be leading a church plant. You may be one of those who's been on this platform in previous years saying, we're moving to here, we're going to there. It started in your burning heart. That's where it starts. Somebody gets a passion. Somebody gets an encounter. Someone gets an anointing. God gets hold of you. He puts a vision in your heart. That's where it starts. It burns there. It doesn't start with a committee. It doesn't start with a, a, well, shouldn't we try this? What about that? I think this should happen. Can I second that? No, no, it comes with someone having an encounter. It really does. It always does. Now, it may not be like that in Saul's kingdom, but that's what it's like in David's kingdom. It comes with God himself initiating. And then we see this. They went, because of Saul's persecution, he goes to the cave of Adullam, 1 Samuel 22.2. You're familiar with this. And 400 come to him. And it's interesting, they're in distress, they're in debt, they're uh, (laughs) discontented. Disconnected, they probably were. (laughs) They're pretty needy people. But I noticed this. It doesn't say they came to the cave. It says they came to him. When people come to your church plant, when people come to your church, you need to, to see this principle. They don't just come to the cave. You know, I've just joined the 400 at Cave Street. You know, we go to Cave Street. Oh, North Street this or, you know, it's the way we've always done it at Cave Street. No, no, they came to him. They came to where God had started it. God anointed him. They came to him. And he became captain over them. The cave is incidental. They came to where the anointing was. They came to where God initiated. That's the big contrast to Saul. They're coming to this fresh initiative. They're coming with an expression of saying, we're coming to what this new thing God is doing, this calling. And he became captain over them. So they had a relationship with their anointed leadership. They didn't simply come into the cave. And when people join your church, it's terribly important that they come into a relationship with the anointed, called leadership. They don't just join the congregation. We need to be careful of that, especially in days when I think for many of us in our churches, we're not quite as particular as we used to be as we uh, embrace some of the cell principles. Oh, just come into the cell, just get to know our values. Now, that's got some worth in it. But listen, are they coming to the leadership? Are they saying, listen, I want you to know you can count on me, I'm in. I'm really buying into your vision, your dream. Otherwise, you can get, suddenly you find you've got a crowd and you don't know if you've got them or not. You don't know if you're building an army. You've just got a cave full of people. You happen to be in the cave as well. They didn't come to the cave. They came to David. And when people get added to you, they need to be added to someone, not just to the cave. Because they start being aware of the cave. You know, the lighting, the air conditioning, or whatever. The The way they do it here. And it gets vague and it gets impersonal. And when it gets vague and impersonal, relational things begin to fade. And we begin to think, well, I'm not sure if I like this cave. No, do you like David? Are you still happy with David? Well, I never thought about that. Well, that's what you need to think about. Are you happy with the anointing on this leadership? Are you happy with the vision? Are you happy with the grace that's there? Is that what you want to be joined to? Do you want to be joined to the grace that's on this leadership? Because we may not even be in this cave for long. We're going to go to Ziklag. We're going here. You know, we're on the move. We're being joined to an anointed moving leadership. Not just to a cave, not just to a building, not just to services, not just to some institutional thing that keeps going. It's a different deal altogether. In fact, it's very different. If you compare it to 1 Samuel 18.5, it says, after David slew Goliath, it says, Saul set David over the men of war. Well, that's an institutional appointment. Saul appointed him. So yeah, okay, so you fit. You're in it. And so, oh, he's the guy that's over us then. But it's very different when guys have the choice. They say, no, I want to be with you. They're there because they want to be there. They're not there simply because, well, it's made happen to you. Now, David actually won their hearts anyway because of the grace that was on him. And that's very possible. That can happen in institutional church life. If the anointing is there, it can still work. But David, I'm sure, found it very different from being just appointed in Saul's army to being in his own cave where people, the only reason they were there was that David was there. They came to be in the sphere of the anointing that was there. They're joining themselves to people, to a person, to an anointing. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is in stark contrast to institutional church or Saul's kingdom. 
or the thing that Ern Baxter described as being the head and shoulders. It's got nothing to do with heart link and saying, as we're going to see, the sort of thing they said in terms of relationship. So it starts low-key, it starts in a cave, but it's very different. For many of us, that's what happened when we started little house churches. No one came to your home because it was 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. They didn't come because there was a service there. The only reason they came was that you were there and God was there. So something broke in that old institution. Well, I go to that building at 11 on a Sunday. I may like the pastor, I may not. I may come next week, I may not. They didn't come for that reason. They came because you were there and God's grace was on you and something new was happening and they wanted to be in on it. And people have said to me over the years, your kind of churches, whether they're in big buildings, even church buildings, or in homes, there's something different about them. And this is one of the big differences, that people join themselves to people. They join themselves relationally, not simply institutionally. It's absolutely fundamental. So we mustn't lose that vital point, or we'll miss the way. They came to him. He was captain over them. There came a relational thing. They said, we understand God's grace is on you. We come to you. We want to be part of this. We love your vision. We love the relationship you have with God. We love what God's doing in you, the promises he's made you. Can we be part of this? And then that began to grow. We find in 1 Chronicles 12, which I referred to earlier, not only just these 400, this small congregation, this kind of cave-dwelling season, which I feel we've been through, but now it says he came to Ziklag. He's still, still held back. He's not, he's not reigning. But he's getting some visibility. He's getting some movement. He's trained up his 400. They're beginning to see some happen. And then it says, There came to David at Ziklag, while he was still restricted, mighty men of war. So now we're finding an army beginning to grow. And they came to David, and it says... They said, we are yours, O David. There's that same principle. You'll find it in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. They gave themselves to the Lord first. That's absolutely vital. Otherwise, you've got a cult on your hand. We first give ourselves to the Lord and then Paul says, and then to us. Now, Paul could honestly say too, we gave ourselves to you. It's not one-way traffic. But it's a real link of love and heart and harmony. It's a coming together relationally. It's friendship. It's the bonds of love. It's joints of supply. It's not just being in a crowd. And that's one of the thrills and privileges of standing on this platform and glancing around here and just seeing dear, dear close friends from nations all over the world that are dear friends. God's doing it. And that people get added like that. So that some who have only been with us a little while feel, I'm in the family. Not just I joined something. New frontiers. The sense in which I almost hate the title, lest it obscures the personal nature of our being joined to one another. Because <coughs> that's the whole point. We're joined to one another. It's hard to be joined to new frontiers. Because if new frontiers gets it wrong, it can't repent. It's difficult. I'll just get new frontiers out. I've got under here. There's no such thing. It's just a name. But if Terry gets it wrong, or any of the team guys, or any of us get it wrong, well, if we show them we're wrong, we can repent. New frontiers can't repent. It's easy to have a bad attitude to an institution. It doesn't affect you either in terms of conscience. You can say terrible bad things about an institution. It's not so easy to say bad things about a guy you know, because you may get conviction of sin. We want to be friends together. We want to build, like David, built a family, like a great army. And it says, verse 22, day by day, men came over to David until there was a great army like the army of God. God's wonderful army. It's like that Ezekiel uh, 37, isn't it? The bones came together, same phrase. They came up like a great army of God. God's looking for a great army, amen? That will run across the nations. He is going to have such a church. It's the church, the passion of God's Son. It will emerge. It will come. And we live in a generation where people have despised the church. They're fed up with church. They say, church isn't going anywhere. We've got out and do something else. And God is saying the exact opposite to us. The church is the heart of everything. We're going to make it all glorious. God's going to make it all glorious. If we will obey him, we will see a glorious church. And here we see how it worked for them. Day by day. 
And so we see a great army, very much in contrast to Saul's scattered, trembling army. We see an army. They gather to him, to his anointing. And then I believe they, they were allowed to gather to him while he's going through his testings, just like Jesus. The way Jesus won hearts, I'm sure, is the way those guys close to him saw, how did he cope? How did Jesus cope with the pressures? How did he cope when they said, yeah, this is just a carpenter's son? How did he cope when there's crowds pressing in? How did he cope when he was maligned? And, and they're watching Jesus, and he could say, then you've been with me. You've seen me. You've seen my fellowship with the Father. That's how it was with the Twelve, that magnificent John 17 prayer. They've been with me. They've watched me. They've handled, as John said later, we handled, we touched. We were close in. We saw the life. We saw the life. We just saw the life. It took our breath away. And now we want to share with you that our fellowship may be together. We want to share with you not just the principles, although we're absolutely certain got to be Bible truths, but we saw the life. We want to share it with you. And I think it was like that for these guys. They watched David. They watched him being maligned. They watched the way he was. They watched the way Saul treated him. They saw the temptation for Saul to speak against it, or David to speak against Saul. They saw the moments when it was so unfair, the way Saul treated him. It was so unfair. It was so cruel. And David could have been so vindicated to kill him. But he didn't. He went into the cave and his, his friends said, oh, kill him. God's given you the moment. It's a God moment. Kill him. And it, just for a moment, he said, well, I'll, I can't bring myself to kill him. And this guy's watching him. Watching. What does he do in the pressure? And he just cuts off a bit of cloth and then he goes across down the valley the other side and he says his heart smote him that he uncovered sore. And there's all these guys watching he won their hearts. He won their hearts. In, they watched his integrity. They watched how disciplined his tongue was. They watched how kind he was to Saul. They watched him weep when Saul died. By the time they want to make him king, they said, oh, do we want this guy king? Because his life was lived out in such a way. He's put under terrible pressure and he didn't sin. Didn't sin against Saul. Didn't act in a way. That they could think, oh, gosh. No, he was so beautiful in spirit. And you know, when you build church, beloved, people watching you. Not just watch what you say from the platform. Not just watch when you say, come on, we're going to... See, it's very easy to pump vision. Come on, let's go, let's go. How are you when somebody doesn't treat you very well? When somebody else isn't very kind? When you get left out? You're not invited on the platform? What sort of things do they hear from you? So he's a good guy, he's got loads of vision, but he's a little bit self-important. They see all that. You don't build church by just putting up a notice board, such and such family church. You build church by walking in godliness and purity and people seeing it and saying, I want to be with these guys. The way this team, the way these guys, the way this leader, the way they are, I just want to be near them. I am so impressed with them. That's how it was with Jesus. They just want to be around him. Because they never felt anything that just made them feel uncomfortable. They just thought, this guy, he's amazing. They must have had their breath taken away with the choices. He says, he went out ahead of them. They followed, scared, but they still followed. He got them. He got their hearts. That's how you build church. When people say, I want to give my heart, I'm in. It's not the rule book that keeps you in. It's not that you just broke clause 7, subsection 3. That's what we said. It's not like that. It's a heart issue. We've given our hearts. If we haven't, we're no longer the outworking of the Trinity's love. We're an outpost of heaven's glory. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Those apostles were privileged to get glimpses into how much the Father loves the Son. Just his devotion, his pure delight in his Father. And, and heaven's giving a huge hint to us through Jesus that he is so wonderful that even if it's a cross, it's worth doing. That's the centre of everything. This love, Father, Son, Spirit. There is such a love, an eternal love. And we are being permitted to be drawn into that forever. 
And the Jesus has come down out of the glory that we can't see. He's come down amongst us and saying to us, listen, he is so wonderful. Whatever it costs, I'm just going to keep loving him. Whatever pleases him. Doesn't matter what pressure I get. I just want to please him. I just want to please him. On the cross, it's finished, Lord. I've done the work. I love you so much, Father. And the Father says, it's my son. I'm so delighted with him. And we're allowed in the circle, beloved. We're allowed in. This is the church. We're allowed in. We can come and taste this. We were far off. Pagans. Didn't even know there was a Messiah coming. Didn't have any covenant promises. Far off. We get right into the family and say, Abba, Father, we're in. And we can live like that. We can say, Father, does this please you? Is this how you want me to speak? Is this how you want me to be? Does this please you? Is this the choice you want me to take? I can live like a son of God. I don't have to live like a rule book. That's why Paul was so angry and upset about the Galatians. He said, you used to be slaves. You're sons now. Why are you going back to the rule book? You've got the spirit of sonship. You can say, Father. You can live by relationship. What on earth are you doing going back to the old slave? Come on, live as a son. Father, what would you like me to do? Am I permitted to say this? Have I got freedom to do this? Are you living like this, beloved? Cultivating our relationship. I believe that he did that. And as this, these, these soldiers, this growing army, some of them real tough guys, they watched him. He won their hearts. So they would say, you know, he's drink, he, wants, he wants a drink. As I think PJ said in the week, you know, he wants some drink. They rush down to get some water from Bethlehem. What, is this a cult? No, it's just love. And then he can't touch it because it's too pure. It's too devoted. It's, it's too much for him to handle. Oh, when's the church going to be like that? It's just too much. I can't handle that. I can't handle that. That devotion is so beautiful. I can't. I hate, I hate ecclesiastical things. I hate church that isn't church. I hate everything that masquerades as church. That is robbing us of this wonderful privilege of being an outpost of heaven. Where love is breathtaking and costly and loving and loyal and true. That's what David did. David built an army. They watched him. They watched him. And he passed the tests wonderfully. And he gathered a great army. So we find eventually 1 Chronicles 11, 1 to 3, there comes the moment of his kingdom coming into place. And uh, I love those opening verses. In 1, uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 11, 1 to 3, it says, All Israel gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, your bone, we are your bone and flesh. I think NIV says, you're our flesh and blood. Simpler, easier to understand. You're our flesh and blood. We just feel so at home with you. Didn't say you're our archbishop, you're our flesh and blood. We know you. You're not fresh out of, you know, you've got all these letters after your name, you must be hot stuff. I'm not against, you know, we've been very helped by people who taught here who've got letters after their name. I'm not against it, I'm just saying your flesh and blood is more important. We feel part of you. We feel joined to you. That's how it was in the Bible. Guys came through the ranks. They weren't imported from some special ecclesiastical context. You're our flesh and blood. We know you. David, you're our flesh and blood. And then it says, you led us, you led us even when Saul was king. You were the one who led us out and brought us in. In other words, they recognize there's an anointing on you, David. You, could, you led us out. Leaders, we must have the ability to lead people out. We've got to lead them out of what tied them up in knots. People that come out of the world with all their sin and bondages and all the mess. One of our gifts is we've got to be able to lead people out. Do you lead people out? See, it's not just adding bottoms to chairs. We've got to lead people out. Out of the world. Out of the way of worldly thinking. Out of, we've got to lead them out. Got, that's one of our callings. They said, you led us out. You've got people in your ranks who say, Phew, he brought me through. She brought me through. I used to be a mess. I got into her uh, class about how to be a proper mum. She changed my life, changed my family. She brought me out. If you see what I used to be. I've talked to people around the world who said, oh, this is so-and-so. Oh, she just brought us through. I was just thinking now of a, uh, a couple right down there, the Lake of the Ozarks in uh, uh, Missouri. 
And I remember a lady saying to me, oh, this time she changed my life. She sat with me every week. She brought me out. All my wrong ideas. I watched her and her husband. I watched the way she lived. She brought me out. We've got to bring us out. And then bring us in. Hallelujah. Into the fullness of the blessing. That's part of what we're called to do. You did it. You didn't have a formal name. You didn't have a formal title. It's evident the Spirit of God was on you. You're our flesh and blood. You're anointed to do it. And then they said this. God said to you. They knew there was a, a God factor in David's life. God said to you that you are to lead us. God said that you shepherd my people Israel. And so they recognized this is how this army got for, uh, formed. They understood you're meant to do this. This is God's will. They made a covenant. They anointed David as king. It was public. It's open. The thing is done. You are now king because all these things were in place. He'd been through the tests, through the trials, through the heartbreaks to the moment of appointing. Everybody's happy. This is the grace of God at work. Hallelujah. They appointed him king. It led to Israel's most successful time. They were invincible in battle. They knew the nation just advanced and advanced and advanced. They won battle after battle as their king taught them. Listen for the moving of the Spirit. Are we meant to fight this battle this way or this way? And he taught a nation to war. And they were magnificently successful. And my last point is this. He was anointed not only to be a warrior, but he was anointed to be a worshipper. He was anointed to be a worshipper. In fact, it's very important, I believe, to understand this. He, although warrior comes first, Worshipper is primary. The Spirit came upon him. He became the psalmist of Israel. He became the worshipper. He became the singer. He sang at first alone, I'm sure. He led them into warfare, but he led them into worship. And I do believe if we'd ask David, what is your ultimate passion? What's your ultimate passion? Are you ultimately a fighter or are you ultimately a worshipper? I think we know what the answer would be. He's a worshipper. That's what God's seeking. God's seeking worshippers. And that's to be our ultimate passion. He said, God put it in my heart, or I had it in my heart, to build a house for God. That was his passion. I want to build a house for God. Like Nehemiah, when you really start building, you find you have to have a sword in your hand. You've got to do some fighting. But the passion is to get the house up for God. The passion is to build a worship centre. Not just a building in normal terms, of course, but a place where God can be. A community of love where God can be worshipped and loved. And so when David took over the, the nation and became king, first thing he wanted, let's get Jerusalem and let's get the ark back. Let's get the presence of God. That's his passion. We do war in order to bring in the worship. We do battle in order to bring in the presence of God. And these Old Testament types are there for us in our generation. We do mission because we want to bring in worship. Or to quote the wonderful John Piper, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And to go on and quote him again, worship is the ultimate, not mission. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, mission will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. <laughs> but worship abides forever. What a wonderful perspective that is. We do mission, we do warfare, we go out to declare war. We've had some very moving times here, looking down on people who've come forward and say, yes, I'm willing to go. And we know, we know, we're going to hear about martyrdoms. We're coming into real Bible Christianity. We will hear about martyrdoms. I've lived with that awareness for some years. There's going to come news one day. There'll be the first martyrdoms. But when we heard about Brother Yun, and we heard uh, in one of the seminars since we've been here about the, the, the passion for the Chinese to make their march uh, back into the Islamic world, they're passionate about it. They want to go. And they're reckoning, yeah, they think maybe 90% may die. But 10% will get through. You think, what? Well, they'll be in prison, but we're used to prison. There's a phenomenal church being brought to birth around the world. And some will throw away their lives in the battle. But the ultimate is worship. We do battle for the sake of worship. 
And so David's saying, David's passionate about worship. David sang alone. God gave him revelations. He sang songs alone to God. No one else is there. He's just singing to God, loving God, worshiping God. And God expanded that sphere until he taught Israel to sing. I don't know if you think about this much, but how did Israel develop its consciousness of God? How did Israel develop its awareness of God's great plans, his promises to the Messiah, his plans uh, for them as a people, his plans to bless the whole of the nations of the world? Much of what they heard, they learned through David's Psalms. So David's sitting alone, now he's the king. He's saying, right, when I get this worship center going, this is the next song, here's another song for you to sing. And the nation is learning about God. They said, wow, this is what our God is like. We didn't know what God was like. These psalms are telling us what God is like. And they're singing them to one another. So, wow, what a God we've got. And they're singing and worshipping and getting their grasp of God through David's anointing. He's bringing them into a worship context, making them aware of who they are. But he's got this passion. Oh, that the nations would worship you. That's his longing. So Psalm 68, 31, it says, Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will stretch out our hands to God. Sing, O God, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. So he's got a passion. Yeah, let's go to all the nations because we want all the nations worshipping God. And that's to be our passion. So worship is primary, battle is secondary. Again, Piper, worship is also the fuel of mission. Passion for God in worship, precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. All history, he says, is moving towards one great goal, the white-hot worship of God and his Son among all the peoples of the earth. Mission is not that goal. It is the means. And for that reason, it is the second greatest activity in the world. Mission is the second greatest activity in the world because worship is the primary activity. One of your greatest callings as a leader is to lead people into worship. It's one of your great responsibilities to lead people to worship. God is seeking worshippers. Does he find a worshipper in your home? Does he come to your home in the morning, hear you singing his praise? Because you're primarily a worshipper. Do you give yourself to worship? Because that's your first calling. I don't think you'll find it easy to lead a church into worship if you're not a worshipper. You might find some musicians, but if you're going to lead a church into worship, it's pretty important you're a worshipper. And if we're leaders, we've got ourselves to be worshippers, primarily like David. The integrity of it being in your heart and then in the nation, and then for the nations. It's no good saying to the far-off nations, you need to worship God. Hey, are we worshiping God? Do you worship God? God wants us to be worshippers with integrity running right through. Mission, the last quote of Piper, mission is not God's ultimate goal. Worship is. And when this sinks into a person's heart, everything changes. Everything changes. This is his ultimate goal, worship. So we're on a mission, yeah. We're on a mission to see people across the Philippines become worshippers. People across Mexico become worshippers. People across Russia become worshippers. That's our motivation. That's our desire. We say, why do you do mission? So stop people going to hell? Well, I'm sure that is a big motivation. But the Bible motivation is God's looking for worshippers. We're going out to the nation to turn fighting fists into raised hands. Pointing fingers to raised hands. Slapping hands into raised hands. Stealing hands into raised hands. God's looking for worshippers. Say, Lord, you're worthy of my devotion. And we know worship isn't just singing songs. We know it's a life poured out. It's a lifestyle that's for his glory. So I want to encourage you as we close. We need to be fighters. We need to be worshippers. Worshippers are really interested in God. Our hearts, David's heart, he said, oh, my, my heart longs for you, like a, a deer, a thirsty deer. And I, I just want you, Jesus. Do you want the Lord? Say, Lord, I want to meet with you today. I don't want to go through a day without meeting with you. I certainly don't want to go to a church meeting without meeting with you. Thirsty, thirsty for God. Say, Lord, I, I long to encounter you, to feel your touch. I want to know about you. You're one of these people, they're always in another book. Why? Well, I want to know more about God. Not silly novels. 
Now, sometimes, you know, I got on a truck plane the other day, I'm awake all night, novel was quite helpful. But reading more about God, get to know God. Are you fascinated with God? We need to read. Because it's, just, it's not just your heart and emotions, it's your mind. I want to get to know more and more and more about God. About his ways. His will working in our lives. Choosing to do his will. Always putting it first. Heart, mind and will. Worshippers. Let me ask you this. You say, I want to bring more people into my church. Have you turned the ones you've already got into worshippers? If you haven't, why should Jesus give you some more? See, we want to be worshippers. We want to draw people into the presence of God. We're living in remarkable days, exciting, historic days. Churches closing all over the place. But somehow it doesn't seem to trouble my heart. Because I thank God I heard um, Baxter's word those years ago that you will see this sort of thing happen. You will see Saul's kingdom closed down. But all over the place, all over the most unexpected places, I'm seeing God's new army emerge. And I'm not just talking about new frontiers. I'm talking all over the place. Unusual, unexpected places. God is on the move. God's waking up a people. God's calling a people to war and to worship. God's joining people, heart loyalty, into great armies. I believe we're meant to be one of those armies. One of these families, these fighting armies for God. All around the world. Joining hands with other similar teams and armies and saying, yeah, God bless you too. Let's go. Let's go and make Jesus famous to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's stand to pray and to sing.